Welcome to Cancel Culture, the business of law podcast brought to you by Byfield. Welcome back to Council Culture, the business of law podcast. Uh, I'm here this week uh, with uh, the chair of the Law Society's uh, LGBTQ plus uh, network committee, uh, Luke Williams. Hello, Luke. How are you doing? Really well, thanks. Thank you so much for coming on this week. Uh, it's really appreciated, as uh, listeners might know. It is LGBTQ History Month in the UK, so we wanted to... Uh, do an episode to kind of celebrate uh, and and discuss a bit more uh, how the industry can be a bit more inclusive, I guess. Um, so first of all, why don't why don't you tell us a bit more about your own background and uh, the, the the network committee and the work that you guys do uh, for the industry? Sure. So I think in terms of my kind of career journey and uh, certainly my position in the law society, I've taken a a slight circuitous route, I suppose you could say. Um, So these days I'm a non-practicing solicitor, but, you know, I studied law at university, was always fairly set on a career in law, Um, initially with a view to becoming a barrister, but having done a little bit of mooting, decided that uh, perhaps advocacy wasn't where my, uh, my interests lay. Um, Mm. So it wasn't, I mean, I come from a really small town in North Yorkshire, so it wasn't really until I got to university that my perspectives were, you know, perhaps a little bit broadened. Um, And I actually got my training contract offer and accepted it before I realised I was a trans man. Right, Um, yeah. So that meant that actually it was quite a daunting prospect to go into a firm as a junior lawyer where you only really have job security for those two years. Yeah. Not really knowing anyone and having to have really some quite grown up HR conversations, which is is something that I'd never done before. Yeah. Um, So certainly that was something that was new to me. And I think... It left me um, feeling a little bit apprehensive, I think, about a career in law. Um, not necessarily, you know, the, the practice of law itself, which yeah. all now is stressful and can often have long hours and demanding clients and all of those things. Um, but also how to navigate the legal landscape, particularly in the days when, for instance, Stonewall was kind of for LGB people, but not yeah. overtly trans-inclusive. So, yeah. you know, with an absence of visible out trans lawyers um, and, you know, having to navigate my own identity and, and how to kind of discuss and impart that with others. You know, it, it really felt like it was going to be a, a Herculean task. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, to cut the sort of <laughs> 10 years of career short, um, alongside kind of a little bit of legal practice here and there, including rather appropriately nine months at a surrogacy law firm, um, I've also been involved in kind of teaching on the law conversion courses, uh, mm. did that for about three or four years. Um, and then latterly, sort of diversity and inclusion as a, a kind of a paid role. Yeah. Um, but I think because I received so much support and mentoring and, and really um, a lot of networking at the beginning of my career, that's something that I've always been really passionate about, kind of paying forward for the people coming after me. Yeah. And it was really through that network and kind of, um, you know, being in the right place at the right time that I was kind of encouraged to join the Law Society's committee. Uh, and after joining the main committee in 2019, um, I eventually became vice chair and then subsequently chair uh, in 2021. It's interesting to hear your experience when you were entering the actual industry, uh, because I noted down a, a stat here um, saying that um, there, there was a report in 2021 by the Law Society around um, the LGBT plus community in the legal profession. And the biggest issue at the time for among LGBTQ plus lawyers that they were reporting was the lack of role models that they had 
at their own firms or whatever corporation they were part of. Uh, and, and you just cited that there that you, you didn't have anyone uh, when you entered the industry to kind of like help you navigate that. Um, how, how have those, your own experiences, I guess, and uh, those of people that you've been working with throughout the years kind of um, inform your work within the network? Um, and what initiatives uh, or projects are you currently working on? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good question, and we could easily spend an hour just talking about that. Um, but I think, sort of, in terms of how the law society operates, you know, the the network that I'm part of is under the umbrella of the law society. But you know, we're volunteers. We're on the committee by virtue of our, our lived experience and yeah. you know the, the backgrounds that we bring from that perspective. Um, but the LGBTQ plus solicitors network is actually one of the newest groups. So you know, they've got junior lawyers, ethnic minority solicitors, disabled lawyers, and our group was only formed in 2016. Yeah. So actually, you know, for what we've managed to achieve in the time available, you know, I, I think we've really made incredible progress. Yeah. Um, so I was doing a little bit of kind of um, an amalgamation because uh, all of this stuff really, it, it's quite easy for it to form into a blur when you, you don't kind of stop to take stock of it. Um, so by way of some kind of headline points, you know, we've got a LinkedIn group with over 3000 members. Uh, you know, we frequently write for the Law Society Gazette on um, whether it's the kind of my legal life feature about careers or indeed about LGBTQ plus history or book reviews or that kind of thing. Mm. Um, annually, we attend Pride, uh, well, Pride in London with the Bar Council and Silex. Um, we also intend to go to a series of other uh, local Prides. Uh, last year, we did Cardiff, which was really nice to tie up with the Law Society's uh, Wales office. Um, and then I think sort of the biggest piece of work that I've been involved with uh, on a slightly more direct level is in 2021, in addition to the Pride in the Law report that you cited, um, we released a suite of documents known as the Transition and Change to, Ex uh, Change to Gender Expression uh, Suite. Mm. Um, so that basically was intended to be a bit of a guide for law firms who wanted to become more inclusive of people who wanted to express their gender, yeah. perhaps outside of the norm of you know men in suits and women in skirts kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, sort of how do you how do you communicate that with uh, you know other members of the firm? How do you support somebody? How do you you know navigate all of the you know the benefits components of things? Um, and then sort of off the back of that, we also um, managed to secure a statement for uh, Trans Day Remembrance from the office holders, mm. basically saying, you know, we stand with trans and non-binary folks in the profession as allies. Um, so Stephanie Boyce was the president at the time, and she signed it, as did Lubna as vice president, and then Nick Emerson as well, who, I mean, you'll note that number one, the three of them have all now been presidents. Yeah. Uh, but number two, I think there's something that I'm sure we'll touch on later around kind of intersecting identities. Mm -hmm. And I think each of those people has been held up as having kind of a cause that they're championing, which notwithstanding the fact that they're not LGBTQ plus themselves, or, you know, they're not, they're not out there as people who are sort of leading with, this is my identity per se. Um, you know, it's one of those things that they clearly see the benefit of um, standing together as diverse communities as a strength in itself. So, you know, Stephanie understandably received a lot of publicity for being the first black president. Mm. Uh, Lubna was the first Asian woman who uh, is also a Muslim. So, you know, there's that. And then I think Nick Emerson in his kind of inaugural speech made very clear that social mobility is an issue close to his heart. Yeah. So again, you've got these kind of disadvantaged communities or, or these kind of, you know, diverse uh, strands of society who are all recognising the importance of being LGBTQ plus allies. And, you know, I mean, I think that's that's fantastic and it's really touching and obviously it's something that we as an LGBTQ plus network are keen to sort of show that solidarity with the other components of the law society as well. I'm sure and and I guess you know 
I think there's a lot of work to do. I mean, in part of that report um, from a few years ago, people were saying that, you know, some of the issues that they were facing and hopefully your guidance would have helped some firms with that was kind of um, coming out to clients, which I think will remain a big issue. Uh, but also microaggressions that they're having either internally or with pe- with clients and whatnot. Uh, and I was actually shocked by that stat, but a third of the people that took the survey um, said that they had experienced some uh, discrimination, whether that's homophobia, you know, transphobia. Um, I mean, it's not surprising in itself, but, you know, you would think that LGBTQ rights would have gone such a long way. I, w- I didn't expect the number to still be that high, especially within the legal profession, because um, I think compared to other professions like finance and whatnot, it's a bit more open. Um, and and people were saying, you know, in, in that report that, you know, less than, I think le- less than a fifth of them had reported those microaggressions and th- that type of discrimination, which is, you know, I mean, it, yeah, it is really underreported. I mean, what what strategies or approaches do you think are most effective in in kind of combating that type of discrimination at work? I mean, especially when it comes from clients. I think law firms really struggle with that, and and you know um, chambers as well. Um, and and so that's my first part of the question. Also, equally, how, how what what is effective in your mind to foster an inclusive? environment for for those people yeah i think sort of two really important questions that you know deserve in a way to be separated out rather than amalgamated into this this kind of one list of bullet points on my part but i think without going too far into sort of personal politics or anything of that nature yeah yeah. um i think the main uh reason for perhaps some of that hesitancy to sort of say to clients you know that's not okay or to, to kind of condemn some of the responses from clients is um, a reticence on the part of firms to either be small p or, or big p political. Um, and I think that's that's understandable from a kind of reputation management perspective. But ultimately, given that firms are collections of people, the fact that people are not monolithic, you know, they do have identities outside of work, whether that's that they're parents, that they're, you know, they're disabled, whatever it might be. You yeah. know, nobody is is a kind of a neat um, cookie that, that's come out of a cookie cutter and, and kind of fits a mould within a law firm or, yeah. or indeed the chambers. Um, and I think to some extent, there is a level of discomfort that prevails at the minute where firms and, and indeed chambers are going to have to get comfortable with drawing a line in the sun somewhere. Um, so as a bit of a, a separate example of that, something that I found quite interesting, um, it was either a couple of months ago or possibly even a year ago, is um, there was a firm that, uh, there was a story reported about this firm because uh, they'd instructed a barrister and then instructed an Asian woman as the, the barrister and uh, the client had basically said, I don't want her, you know, I don't want an Asian barrister. Mm. And, you know, I think I would like to think that the answer as to what you do in that that kind of dilemma is obvious. You say to the client, well, you know, we very much have zero tolerance for discrimination. We're not going to stand for that. Yeah. You know, she is the best person for the job. I don't care what you think of her. Um, either we go with her because she's the best person for the job or you're, you're welcome to, you know, to, to walk away, but we're not going to represent you and disinstruct her. Mm-hmm. Unsurprisingly, given that it was a story in the news, you uh, you won't be uh, surprised to hear that what actually happened is that they sheepishly disinstructed her and, and when pressed for a reason said, well, that the client doesn't want an Asian barrister. And I saw an absolute outpouring of condemnation and, you know, a real... 
um, a very robust kind of um, statement from the legal community as yeah. a group of people saying this is outrageous I can't believe in this day and age it's still going on but I don't recall seeing kind of from an organizational standpoint individual firms saying you know this is this is not okay and mm. we as an industry need to make a stand against that you know I don't know whether it's because they didn't want to be seen to be kind of turning on one of their own in the sense of you know sort of sniping at other businesses or what yeah. but the point is individuals have more of a role as a collective in calling out behaviours that they don't agree with than I think individuals necessarily give themselves credit for. Mm. So on that basis, to kind of, I guess, now come to the second question, um, I think the main thing you need for this kind of inclusive and supportive environment, which is you know increasingly being asked for in the context of you know ESG and sort of demonstrable diversity by, by clients and, and kind of suppliers, um, is an environment of trust and an openness to learning where people genuinely want to understand somebody else's experience which may differ from their own and they're asking questions in good faith and similarly people on the receiving end of those questions will treat them as being asked in good faith until it's proven otherwise that that person is you know sort of um, agitating or, or deliberately sort of being disingenuous yeah um and I think really that's only possible where that ethos of kind of uh, shared understanding or, or wanting to learn about each other is kind of set down by the firm at a kind of top-down uh, level as, as part and parcel of its culture. Um, and part of that is demonstrating, you know, it's, it's easy to say we celebrate diversity in a very nebulous way yeah. without specifying, you know, okay, well, well, you know, what do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's much more difficult to say, and here are some of the ways that we do it, whether it's, you know, sort of um, flexible working for parents or, um, you know, sort of um, the flexibility around disability and, and working locations in that sense. You know, there are lots of ways that you can demonstrate it, but demonstrating it or having policies in place proactively rather than reactively waiting for someone with that protected characteristic to come forward, yeah. I think really sets the tone that you're a safe firm to have that conversation with and for to sure. say, hi, HR, um, I've not spoken about this before, but this is my circumstance. This is kind of what I need from you for you to get the best from me and, and obviously my mental health to enable me to give you my best mm -hmm. and to have that open dialogue in a way where everybody feels safe and, and kind of comfortable. Um, but I think just just kind of one other thread to, to kind of pick out really, um, diversity, equity and inclusion often has its own language and intersectionality is kind of one of those words that I think is a big part of it. And there seems to be a certain amount of um, mystery outside of these circles as to what that means. Mm -hmm. And in a nutshell, it's the idea that we are all multifaceted people yeah. and it's not about looking at anyone through one particular lens of saying you know that person is black or that person is a woman you know being a black woman will give you a sort of compounded disadvantage in a way that you know you can't quantify it and say you know she has three points of disadvantage because she's black and two because she's a woman so that makes five and in fact you know intersectionality is a, a concept was coined by Kimberley Williams Crenshaw a, a US lawyer who was kind of as I say, in a nutshell, saying that being at the intersection of two characteristics will give you a different experience to people who just have one of those characteristics. Yeah. Um, but I think, as I say, intersectionality sometimes uh, spooks people when it comes to diversity and inclusion talk because they, they feel like they're not qualified to enter the conversation. Um, but in terms of how to learn more or, or you know, sort of how to navigate these issues sensitively, 
I think broadly speaking, there's almost an analogy to be had with legal advice in the mm. sense that you know somebody's time and their lived experience is valuable, regardless of how much you as an individual value it. You know, there will be somebody out there who values it more or less. Um, so it's just about kind of being mindful about how you ask somebody to share it. Yeah. You know, lay people don't always know the correct terminology when they speak to lawyers, but you know, provided that they are open to listening to what you have to say and you know, really internalizing that answer. Um, you know, that's the main thing. But ultimately, it's it's very much a question of, as I say, being sensitive to the fact that you are ultimately asking someone to give you something for free. You know, you're not entitled to that. But equally, you know, the least you can do is is kind of really take it on board and, and listen to them rather than just kind of hearing the words and, and not really um, not placing as much value in it and respecting the time and resource that they've given you and possibly the trauma to, to upskill you and to give you that understanding yeah. as much as the effort it's taken them to share it with you. Yeah. So in your experience, um, what are some common misconceptions or misunderstandings around, I guess, gender recognition and LGBTQ rights uh, within, within the legal community? What are you seeing? I think it's one of those things where actually the kind of the legal framework is less important than you might think day to day mm-hmm. um, in the sense that how we treat people seldom depends on, you know, what their birth certificate says. Yeah. Um, but I think, to be honest, the biggest issue kind of facing trans and non-binary people in the industry in a wider sense is kind of a lack of awareness of the reality of trans lived experience mm-hmm. or a disinterest in it because it kind of doesn't affect individuals. So looking ahead, obviously, I mean, what would you like to achieve uh, with the network? Um, and, you know, how would you envision the future of uh, LGBTQ plus rights in the legal profession? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I say, from the legal professions, the, the, the legal professions perspective, it's mostly a question of culture rather than um, sort of rights as such. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that there are some firms out there who are openly and, and quite explicitly inclusive and you know they do publicize that they're doing things not just for pride but you know they have these particular policies or their private medical coverage covers some of the costs of transition which you know is meaningfully significant to trans people who otherwise yeah. have to wait you know four years for a first appointment easily you know sort of five to ten years to actually complete their medical transitions if that's what they want but um there may be lots of firms out there who equally would be um not non-inclusive but perhaps aren't really championing that in an explicit way um and you know as somebody who has kind of had slightly negative experiences before as a job seeker that is something that i do look at on the careers pages and i think that you know firms perhaps underestimate the significance of seeing those signals because to them your identity is no big deal but again in the same way that saying we celebrate diversity is sufficiently nebulous that i can't be sure you really know what you mean by that yeah just saying you know we're an inclusive firm you know what does that mean in real yeah, do you, time? Like, do you understand, for instance, what you know the different types of disability look like? You know, it's not always about needing to use a wheelchair. Um, yeah. And if you don't have a nuanced understanding of different people's lived experiences, are they actually going to find it an uphill battle to advocate for themselves? Because what you're trying to do is treat everybody the same on the basis that we don't see X, Y, Z. Um, so sometimes, paradoxically, by um, erasing the differences or, or kind of um, trying to uh, sort of blanket. Um, uh, sort of broad brush them, it means that people aren't getting the individualised uh, treatment that they need for the particular circumstances to, to really get the best out of them. Mm. So I guess really sort of three things that um, I'd want from the profession. First, 
greater facilitation of diversity, equity and inclusion as kind of an integral part of providing high quality service to you know, a breadth of clients who identify in different ways. Um, secondly, improved access and career progression for LGBTQ plus lawyers. Um, so, you know, it's all well and good taking on diverse trainees, but if actually there's a ceiling and whether it's women, whether it's queer people, whether it's disabled people, you know, they're not actually progressing to partnership, then actually that diversity at the early stages is, is you know, slightly missing the point. And also, I think it highlights a deeper issue because it's, it's nice, I think, that you're making an effort for them to have a way in. Mm. But as you say, the, the retention and progression, I think that's where they struggle. That's what they struggle with the most yeah. um, across the board. And it's not just for LGBTQ people. I think it's for, you know, women, you know, mm. ethnic minorities and, 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 and so on. So it's kind of, as you say, I mean, I think, you know, just for women alone, there's so few of them that make it to equity partnership. And it, they've been in the in the industry for a hundred years, so you would think that they would have achieved a lot more than that. And it's not for them to achieve that; it's just that I just don't think they were given mm. the tools to get there faster. <laughs> um, and I think that's the same for for other sides of society, unfortunately. Um, sorry, but go no, ahead. Um, yeah, and then the third one really was, um, I mean, without going into detail on the Pride in the Law report, which warrants a, a reading itself, and I'm, I'm sure you'll put the, the summary in the show notes. Um, yeah, I think that lawyers kind of need to have the confidence that their firms will back them fearlessly without being, you know, overly concerned about alienating clients, where clients are unequivocally not, you know, acting in ways which are conducive to the firm's values, like the, the Asian barrister example. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think ultimately you're absolutely right. It's... It's only really by listening to people's lived experiences and getting a sense of, again, DEI buzzword, but unconscious bias, where you get a sense of, you know, what some of the difficulties are. So, for instance, you know, are women of a certain age, you know, sort of in their 20s and 30s, assumed to be going off in a few years to have kids, which means yeah. there's no point making her a partner because, yeah. you know, she's not going to be here. Or similarly, you know, is a disabled person who has to take a certain amount of time off sick, seen as somehow less committed to their job because they've got a lot of absences. Yeah. You know, there are lots of things where it's only if you've been on the receiving end of them as a pattern of behaviour that you can say, okay, this suggests that people have a degree of bias that, you know, they're not being malicious towards me. But, you know, I've been in rooms where we've done sort of interviews and stuff. I hasten to add, not the law society, but, you know, black candidates have been described as being well-polished. And it's like, okay, so the implication is that, you know, you don't think black people as a whole, as this monolithic, stereotypable group, are polished. And it's like, that's absolutely not okay to say. But the fact that you thought it was a positive, it's like, you know, for a black person, I thought they came across really well. It's like... That's not okay, but at least since I'm here, I can call it out. If I wasn't yeah. in this room, you know, that hiring decision is being influenced by somebody's personal um, beliefs, stereotypes, prejudices, whatever you want to call it. And it's only by hearing from the experiences of people who've been on the receiving end of that enough times to identify that, you know, it's not that I need to work on my interview technique. There is some commonality of, of stereotyping here that we're able to say, okay, are there unquestioned assumptions and how do we break them down? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um... So looking back at your career, um, what what advice would you give to your younger self and to other, I guess, LGBTQ plus uh, individuals coming into the legal profession, where, wherever they are, whether they're going into, you know, uh, yeah, becoming barristers, law firms or, uh, you know, in-house counsel? Yeah. 
Um, so certainly when I was applying for training contracts, there was a massive um, bottleneck by virtue of the fact that um, very often people had been told that getting legal work experience as a paralegal was a good way to um, to get a training contract because you got your foot in the door. Yeah. Um, but that then meant that if you had loads of LPC graduates who'd self-funded and couldn't get a training contract, they were paralegal. And even though you don't really need an LPC to become a paralegal, it was raising the entry standard in terms of what firms could ask for right. for a paralegal role, which is, is kind of... You know, there is a certain amount of technical skill in what paralegals do, but they don't need to be at the level of a qualified solicitor. That's, you know, that's the whole point of being a paralegal, that you gain that on the job training. And, you know, similarly, I can't imagine that the market is any better now. But back in my day, you know, I was very much of the view and, you know, I have friends of, of the same nature that... I just need to get qualified. I can make X, Y, Z compromises to get qualified. And once I'm a newly qualified solicitor, I can leave, I can do something else. And in practice, you know, that doesn't always happen. And that's not necessarily identity related. Um, so, I mean, within my, my kind of friendship circles, you know, I've got one friend who trained in an area of law that she didn't really have a heart set on and she's still practicing it what, eight years later or something? Um, again, another friend, he took a high-paying uh, high training contract at this kind of big, glossy international firm uh, with a view to kind of prioritising work and, and obviously the, the commensurate salary and then kind of readjusting his work-life balance as he got a bit older, maybe settled down. That's also not happened. You know, last time we spoke on Zoom, he was coming at me from the conservatory in his, his big house and, and more power to him. But with a mortgage that big, you know, you can't walk away from yeah. you know, the, the job that you've got. Um, so again, you know, I think that... In a way, holding out, particularly if you're a, a kind of marginalised person, holding out for a firm that shares your values and where you just have a good feeling that the people really get you as a person may feel like it's going to make things more difficult at the start of your career. But really, the positive effect on your mental health just cannot be overstated. Mm. Um, so it's almost worth making it hard at the beginning to make it easier going forward. Yeah. Um, and I think as well, from my own position, you know, as I say, there weren't many openly trans lawyers. There certainly weren't any at my training firm. Um, so that meant that I had to kind of look externally and really build my network to, to sort of throw myself on the mercy of anyone who'd listen and say, look, you know, I'm, I'm really lost. I don't know what to do here. Mm. Um, and it's through that that, you know, I've had some amazing mentors. I mean, Patrick McCann is, um, is a case in point. You know, he's now, I think, global head of learning at Linklaters. He was kind of working within the learning and development space before that, but, you know, sort of cis white gay man. And yet, you know, despite being kind of part of that, that very stereotypically privileged demographic, he's done so much as, as an ally and a, a genuine sort of friend to, to kind of advance LGBTQ plus and social mobility stuff. Um, so it feels really scary at the, the, at the very start when you're being vulnerable and you're asking for help and mm-hmm. laying yourself bare. But actually, you know, there are so many people out there like Patrick who want to pay it forward from their own experiences of the profession yeah. that actually, you know, making yourself a bit of a person rather than this, this kind of cookie cutter in a suit helps to humanize you to fellow professionals and indeed to clients. And, you know, being representative of the people that you serve, I think, is something that's really important in an industry where people are buying legal services from people. You know, we all talk as a profession about trusted advisor status. That's something that develops by virtue of people feeling like you genuinely understand them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it makes a massive difference. But again, you know, I very much fall into the camp of wanting to do what I can for the people after me. Um, so, you know, if there are any listeners who do want to reach out, um, either you can contact me directly. Um, I'm on LinkedIn uh, under Luke Williams. Um, you can join the Law Society's LGBTQ plus solicitors network group. Um, or if you just have kind of a one-off question and you'd like a bit of signposting, um, lgbt at lawsociety.org.uk uh, comes through to like a shared inbox that we can then manage internally from there. Great. Well, Luke, um, we're coming to the end of the podcast, but thank you so much uh, for joining me this week. Really appreciate it. Um, 
And uh, to the listeners, uh, reach out to Luke if you ever need to or if you ever want to. And um, we'll be back next week for another episode. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. You've been listening to Council Culture, the Business of Law podcast brought to you by Byfield. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and join us again next week. We'll be discussing some more of the biggest stories in the legal sector.